Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Spartan Forge. On today's episode, I'm joined by the Andy May and Garrett Prawl, the DIY sportsman. This recording came from a Spartan Forge Instagram live event that we had back in the summer, but it's really relevant to the beginning of October and throughout hunting season. We discussed relocating bucks in the fall from the summer, how to hunt an area with too many acorns, following a specific buck throughout the whole season, utilizing the journaling feature within the Spartan Forge app, hunting off of instinct versus historical data, doe groups, and much more. 100% born in the Appalachian Mountains and made in the USA, Timber Ninja Outdoors provides a range of mobile hunting options to accommodate diverse hunting preferences. Whether you prioritize comfort, lightweight design, or versatility, their two-panel and single-panel saddles collection has something for everyone. The Black Belt Nano is the lightest single-panel saddle available on the market, weighing in under a pound. The saddle is designed with the minimalist hunter in mind, focusing on lightweight functionality and breathability. One notable feature is the patent-pending magnetic stick clip system on the side, which allows for convenient transportation of sticks up the tree, as well as a built-in platform holder. The Nano Saddle can be folded up to the size of a Nalgene bottle, enabling easy portability. With a four-way stretch material on the back for a comfortable fit, as well as strategically placed padding for hip pinch relief. You can use code EASTMEETSWEST to get free shipping on any Timber Ninja order. If you try it out and don't like it, send it back within 30 days for a full refund. Learn more at TimberNinjaOutdoors.com and sign up for their email newsletter for exclusive discounts and product drops. When it comes to optics, I get the same question over and over again. What are the best all-around binoculars? Well, it's tough to find something that works in every condition great, but after using a pair of Maven B1.2 10x42s, I think I found them. They feature an 8x or a 10x option, superior low light performance, tack sharp edge to edge clarity, a generous depth of field, and a silky focus mechanism. All of Maven Optics have a lifetime no fault warranty and hail from the great state of Wyoming. I've been using Maven Optics since I bought my first pair in 2017, and I think you should test them out for yourself. Head over to mavenbuilt.com and use the code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT for a free gift with any full price optics order. For all of those that want a truck bed cover for work or play, Diamondback makes the top of the line heavy duty covers that help you do more with your truck. They're perfect for the truck owning, avid sportsmen, outdoor enthusiasts, and weekend project warriors. I'm currently using the HD cover that can is capable of holding up to 1,600 pounds on the top. And then I have the Yakima overhaul HD bars on top so I can put my rooftop tent on it. When I'm not using my rooftop tent and able to use the trifold design of the Diamondback, I have the Crossbin 8 in there to organize all of my stuff in the back of my truck bed. Diamondback is made right here in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania. If you want to check them out, head over to diamondbackcovers.com. If you've wanted that hunting camp tradition that we talk about, that experience, but you don't have a hunting camp of your own, you're welcome to come stay at my hunting camp up here in the Pennsylvania wilds called the Elk Crossing Getaway in the PA wilds. So if you go over to Airbnb, you can check out 
our three bedroom, one and a half bath house that's right in the heart of Pennsylvania elk country. It's only minutes away from a bunch of public land to be able to hunt, hiking trails, outdoor recreation, fishing, all of those things there. The house is completely fully stocked with everything that you need to be able to, to spend a week hunting deer, taking your family up to see the elk, anything like that. So if you head over to Airbnb and search Elk Crossing Getaway in the PA Wilds, you'll find my listing there and you can rent out my house to send us a message, an inquiry that you're interested in it and mention that you heard it on the podcast here, then we'll get you 10% off of your first day. On this week's Mountain Buck Monday story of the week, we are bringing back Mountain Buck Monday here. I'm glad to get this rolling again. This story came from Brian Seitz out of the mountains of Virginia. He had said, one area I hunt has a north to south running main ridge, steep on both sides with steep, narrow finger ridges running off the east and west sides. I typically hunt the east side of the main ridge, but on November 5th, 2020, I decided to hunt a spot I had never hunted before, which was the west side of the ridge. There's a finger ridge on that side that isn't as steep with deep draws on each side. I had found a large scrape there the day before. So that morning with a western wind, I was in my tethered phantom saddle for just the second time ever. At 7.30 a.m., a single doe came by out of the draw to my right, but no buck behind her. By 9 a.m., the temperature was nearing 60, so I thought the morning might be a bust. But at 9.15, I heard a loud single grunt to my left. Coming out of that draw was a doe with a large framed eight point on her tail. I'm left-handed, so I needed to swing around the tree to get in a position for the shot. His grunting was insane at this point, and I took the shot as he was almost 10 seconds into a long, low, growling type grunt. The smoke cleared, and he was gone. But the doe was still standing there. So I knew at that point that he was hit. He crossed the draw and came towards me, dying within 50 yards. It was a great morning with buddies there that I only get to see a few times a year to help me get the buck out of the mountains. Well, that's an awesome story to really get things kicked back off for Mountain Buck Monday from Brian, who I'd actually met at the Great American Outdoor Show in Harrisburg this past year and hunt some rugged country down in Virginia. And this buck, you have to head over to Instagram or Facebook to be able to check it out, but it is a freaking tank. Big eight point, awesome buck. So congratulations, Brian. Hope that you have some good luck this year. All right, so... As of this week, I am in Illinois hunting. Uh, I'll be out on the, as I mentioned last week, I'd be on the, the Quiet Cat hunt. So this is a hunt that Quiet Cat invited me to, to go on. And basically on a big chunk of farm country, private land, and trying to figure it out. See if uh, there's a, a few of us that they invited, trying to see if we can figure it out and, and um uh, take the big wood skills and see how it applies to the farm country. So I'll be interested to see how this one goes. So at the time of recording this, I'll be out there hunting already. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for that, but I'm really disappointed in missing Pennsylvania. So on Friday, which is actually right now when I'm recording this, uh, it was the day before the opener in Pennsylvania, I went to deer camp, hung out there, a few of us. And I just, man, I love, I've only last year was the only year I've ever killed one on opening day, but I just love hunting season rolling in. I love everything about it. 
And uh, I'm really going to be biting at the bit to chomping at the bit to get back and, and, and get rolling in Pennsylvania. But I actually might, if I'm not successful in Illinois, I'm going to drive straight to West Virginia and get some cameras out and maybe hunt a couple days um, just to, through the weekend because I'm only hunting in Illinois for four or five days. And then I'm going to go down to um, yeah West Virginia and, and see what that's all about. So trying to get ready for my, my rut trip down there later on in November. So yeah, that's that's kind of what's going on here. Uh, also, the new Deer Camp collection launched on the website. It's the apparel collection, eastmeetswesthunt.com slash shop. You can see that. Got some new hats, got some blaze orange beanies. The blaze mountain bucks hats are, are in stock. We've got uh, shirts, hoodies, everything that was something I drew up on a piece of paper. And I used to like to draw a lot. So I, I drew up basically our deer camp and how how I feel the vibe when someone pulls in with a truck and a deer in the, ba- the bed of the truck. And I wanted to make that happen. And then Jordan Riley of Captured Creative turned that into um, a sweet logo that just turned out, I, I think turned out great. And uh, so we put that on some different pieces. Uh, I'm excited for that. So that's over on the website. Um, please allow seven to 10 days to be able to arrive during hunting season as I'm in and out. And so it's a little bit harder to get things shipped out, but I'll make sure I get it out as soon as possible. And I have some people helping out when I'm gone too. So it should come sooner than that, but just wanted to, to put that out there and Q4, all 3% of the sales are going to the national deer association. So donating that back as I've done all the way since 2018, every quarter I pick a different conservation organization and donate that back. So, and the last thing I want to note is if you didn't check it out already, my, the video, my 2021, uh, opening day, Pennsylvania buck video is live on YouTube. It's over there. I did a vlog style. It's definitely not a Justin Mueller film, but, uh, I wanted to show the process behind it. I'm going to try to sell film some stuff this year. Not, I'm honestly, I'm not that worried about filming the shot and all those things. I'm going to really try, but that's not, I want to. My platform's more trying to be educational and showing the backstory behind why I'm doing what I'm doing and how things played out. So hopefully, uh, if you like that kind of stuff, check it out and see what you think and uh, give me some feedback. But anyways, good luck to everybody. It's uh, October now and it's the best time of the year. Super excited. And I hope everyone has a great rest of your week. Hey everyone, I think I got the live chat going here all right. Uh, can someone comment to make sure they can hear me all right? There he is. Hey, buddy. What's going on, Andy? Not much, man. How are you? Oh, I can't complain. Can't complain. Yeah. I, haven't seen, uh, I haven't seen Garrett join here yet. He might be pulling up the rear, but uh, how you doing tonight? Pretty good, man. Pretty good, yeah. Um, just got done at the gym and took a shower and here we are i wanted first i wanted to say we have looks like we have just about 100 people on here right now so thanks everyone for joining uh the live event so once garrett gets on here we'll have just about everybody tony get your bags packed bo <laughs> um so we'll be we'll be able to do kind of a, a live q a type thing we have some questions that are here already but i kind of wanted to start it off and almost treat it like like a podcast i am recording this so i do have uh 
So I do have the audio linked up and I'll kind of release it as like a bonus episode or something on the, the podcast here too. But yeah, no, that was, that was some of the questions I had. I had probably three or four questions that was surrounding this topic was like the summer locations versus, you know, transitioning to the fall. Do you find like they, they go a long ways away or is it just more of fine tuning, figuring out what that food source is closer to the season? Um, you know, it, it just really depends. You know, I've had, uh, I've had some deer that I've had to relocate that were literally like two plus miles away. Um, you know, if there's a, it seems to be like, you know, they're all bachelored up and, and you know, there's a over here, there was, there was two different parts of the area within a mile. And I saw probably 12 different bucks. Um, not, not very many good ones, but you know, there's just a big wad of bucks in a a particular area. And, um, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna separate, you know, when the velvet comes off and they're gonna, kind of go back to their their fall range so you know it's just it's up to me to figure out where that is you know if you got some history with one that helps you know and i do with a couple of these deer whether i go to target them or not i'm, I'm not sure but um there was another one that was a brand new deer so you know i'm gonna keep eyes on them i'm gonna pop in every once in a while and and still cover some new country too and, and try to find some other deer that might be a little bigger or older um but if you know, if he ends up being one of the better bucks I find, then I'm really going to try to dial that in. Yeah. Um, where the area that I'm looking at, there's a little bit of public, um, but it's mostly private ground. Um, and I got permission on a couple of small pieces, like, like seven acres total between two pieces. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, even if I do find them and they relocate, it's likely going to be on a piece of ground where I don't have access to if there's no public around and, you know, and I'll, I'll try the door knocking thing, but that's getting harder and harder. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. I, and I guess here, like where I'm hunting in Pennsylvania and in the big woods, the summer transition to fall is, it can be twofold. It really depends on the area. If it's an area that doesn't have a lot of mass crop and I'm focusing mostly on brows that are like logging cuts or, or yeah, m- mostly logging cuts or other t- sorts of brows, I find that they certain bucks will stick around like someone asked a question it's like all right how many of your bucks stick around from the summertime to the fall and for me it was like i don't know say i have seven to nine deer at like one location during the summer i'd say two to five of them stick around and it depends on you know if they're the browse deer some once those bachelor groups and they kind of figure out their role in the in the whole i guess uh buck pool there they kind of split up and change but if there's like say it's a, an area that does have like a logging cut and then all of a sudden two ridges over has some oak trees and acorns start dropping, then game's up. It's time to start figuring things out a little bit differently. So, uh, yeah. you know, like I'll kind of basically spread my cameras out, like trying to anticipate where they might be going rather than trying to chase them. I don't know if, uh, any of you guys kind of have, you know, similar strategies, like, you know, with the summer stuff, trying to anticipate that fall switch or are you trying to locate them and like, you know, buy glass or something else to move along. Yeah. This, this particular area that I'm in is real ag heavy. Um, so there's good food everywhere. Um, so it, it's, it's hard to anticipate, but what I've really found is that, you know, they, the, the older bucks tend to relocate to where the best cover is. I mean, that's the, that's the, 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 the rarest thing here We're we got plenty of food, like tons of food. Um, and that dwindles down as, you know, harvest happens, but you know, they, they really tend to relocate to those, those areas that have the best cover and ultimately the lowest, you know, hunting pressure. So 
here it's 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 the best cover and the least amount of hunting pressure because there's not a lot of good cover and the hunting pressure is really high so that's usually where they relocate to and then ah. you know you'll get those little satellite bucks that are immature and stuff kind of in some obscure places but uh you know they tend to get popped really quick yeah that's uh yeah you're in a basically the total opposite situation of what what i'm dealing with there what about you garrett what, what's it look like for you in the summer when you missed the beginning so thanks for thanks for joining us there i, I know yeah. not, none of us have ran uh instagram live before so trying to figure that out has been uh <laughs> it's been interesting but uh anyways garrett what about with you um you know and some of what's your kind of like the summer uh scouting strategy looking like right now and then how does that transition to you know the, the fall so for the most part right now, I'm getting ready to start putting out cameras with the intent that I'm putting them in areas that should get better as the season progresses. So I'm basically putting them in fall locations as opposed to summer locations. You know, last year I, I tried to do a little bit of a switch and try and get more summer inventory and try to set up more on like clear cuts that were fresh and food sources and things like that. And it really just didn't seem like it was worth the effort in dealing with the bugs and all the bears. I was constantly trying to check cameras and it's not a close drive to most of the places that I hunt. So it was a lot of maintenance. Um, whereas if I put those cameras in areas where I know they're going to get bucks and it's like, to a certain extent, I don't care as much if I'm not getting pictures of the deer I expect to see later in the fall in like July, August, if I do, it's a bonus. I might just get like a picture randomly, like once every two weeks or something of a buck that hits a scrape that is going to get hot in October. And then I know, okay, he's alive. Like I don't need to be seeing him every day. Um, and then, you know, once September rolls around, like if I see an opportunity, sure, I'll try and capitalize on it. But you know, it seems like more and more lately, I'm, I'm more trying to plan for when the hunting is going to get well and then make sure that I'm prepared for it. Yeah, no, that, that, that totally makes sense. And, and I know like, especially in, in places like for myself, when, uh, if I don't have a lot of time to be able to focus on it like that, it's the same thing. Like even though I'm spring scouting, I'll drop cameras that are focused on the rut. If I know I'm not going to get back to that area for that time, you know, I guess it just, it just kind of depends there. So yeah, that, that makes sense. Kind of three different strategies from all of us there and a little bit different, I guess, geographic locations. Um, another question that was on this, on this topic that I w wanted to bring up this one from 365 day hunter, um, Eli, uh, he sent this one in about how to scout mass crops in the summer to better determine where the deer will be in the fall. Do any of you guys look at that or, and if you do, how do you do so? Let's start with you, Andy. What was it again? Uh, mass crops like how are you locating you know acorns or anything else in the summertime if you are at all and uh like when do you start doing that yeah um yes and no um i've i've mentioned on podcasts before that um uh, around here like you got to understand i'm in southern michigan northern ohio um so it's, it's a lot of ag ground but we also have a lot of swamps and marshes um in the ag ground um a lot of our timber has oaks um and, and certainly there's a transition from like you know off of like beans and alfalfa to the oak trees when they're dropping um you know i i i do check on those but you know it's it's so ag dominated around here um really a lot of my my strategy is 
centered around that. Um, I'm aware of where the oaks are. Um, it becomes a much bigger factor for me in like the swamp and marsh setting when you get like an oak island, um, something that's much more identifiable and kind of remote. Um, a lot of our timber here in the ag country is just, you know, a lot of it, that's where the hunting pressure is here in Michigan. You know, it's, you hear about high hunting pressure and, and, and that's where everybody's at. They're in the timber. So, you know, capitalizing on a, uh, an acorn drop, like on an early season or, you know, mid October pattern, it, it's, it's very difficult, you know, um, it's very difficult because the lack of cover has deer, if they're in the timber, they're usually bedded pretty close to, you know, to that type of food source. Um, you know, every area is different and, and sometimes you have some room to kind of work in between that, but it's a lot different than say like a hill country or a big woods type setting. But, um, in the, in the swamps and marsh area where you can get like an oak island yeah you know th that's that's a big deal um you can you, know, you can really capitalize on that so there's um an area about an hour north of here that i hunt um often and you know th that one i will check quite a bit you know for for mass crops apple trees um you know white and red acorns um are the big the big ones around here but you know it's just there's so much ag um, you know, it's really broken up country. It's a lot different than, you know, say when I go down to Kentucky or, you know, even parts of Iowa that are, that were bigger blocks of timber or Southern Ohio or something like that, where, um, you know, that I think those things matter more, um, you know, cause you don't have as much of the corn and the soybeans and alfalfa and that kind of thing. So I, I pay attention to it, but I don't think I put as much weight on it in an ag setting as some of like my buddies do that hunt more of like big woods, hill country, you know, everything revolves around mast. And, um, but in the swamp and marsh setting, yeah, it can be a big deal and it can be, you know, that can make or break a hunt. So you, having that knowledge of where those are and, and when they're falling, if they're producing, you know, that can be a, a huge deal in like a swamp or marsh setting where you have a Oak Island. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. What about you, Garrett? Yeah, I mean, like Andy, we have some of those cattail marsh type areas around, and some of them by me are really vast and big. I mean, you might have, you know, 30 plus oak islands on a single piece of public. And so you find most of the white oaks either by looking at maps and just seeing how that canopy looks, or just physically putting boots on the ground out there. And you find a lot of white oaks on some islands, and then other areas where it's just mostly reds, where you don't really have oaks at all. And you can find big ones, mark them, take pictures, whatever. But ultimately, this time of year, it's like there's that big decision of do I go through all the physical effort of, you know, pounding through that marsh and trying to take binoculars and figure out which one of those trees are going to be dropping acorns this year. The alternative strategy would be you just go in and kind of stage hunt it. You know that you can hit on a certain line these four or five islands and you hit the first island and you check it with the binoculars. And if it's dropping acorns, then you hunt it and then save the next ones for different hunts. Or if it doesn't look that great and there's no fresh sign, then you move on to the next one. Like my wife and I did that. I remember on a hunt a couple of years ago on opening weekend in Minnesota. And we did that thing, that same thing, you know, first island, nothing, second island, nothing, third island. And these are all places that had white oaks. And, you know, we had scouted it in the spring and it looked great, but they just weren't there that time of year. And eventually we got to the last island and it was kind of like the end of the line. So we decided to hunt it anyway, even though the sign you know, was somewhat dry, but there wasn't a lot of acorns on the ground and bucks were still there 
they just were feeding more on the browse on the secondary islands and spending a lot more time on those areas before they came up onto the main island. And I imagine at that point, they probably, you know, either picked up what they could for acorns or went further and traveled that direction. But it's kind of interesting to see that, you know, even in that type of scenario, the lack of acorns was still fine. And I definitely prefer if I can find early season, the isolated oaks, you know, versus like Southern Minnesota hill country, you got acorns, all elevations all over the place. And, you know, like same thing in North Dakota, we go out there last year was a bumper crop and you can hardly take a step without falling or stepping on acorns. So that made it pretty tough for early season. Yeah. I was going to say, what do you do in those scenarios when you find those areas that are just loaded? That was another question. It was just like, you know, hills, just every, the whole entire woods, you know, basically is covered in acorns. I've, I've come across this before. So I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are. For me, I either focus on hunting it during the rut and hunt other habitats early season when you're going to be able to get those deer concentrated down more, or you find some other kind of secondary food source that might be closer where you think they're bedding. Yeah. No, that's, I, I basically, I treat, I treat areas that have acorns like on every single ridge as if they have none, because unless it, unless you find like, you know, white oak or something that's in the, the, you know, the mixture of it. But I, I find a lot of times that the, like when there's all those like that, it's mostly red oak and it's the same across the board. So it's like basically starting from scratch for me to be able to, to figure that out. So trying to find out a different um, you know, different food source basically, or yeah, something else along those lines. But when I'm looking at, you know, in the summertime, I don't spend a whole lot of time paying attention to, to mass crop. I mean, I, I will like look in the trees, you know, with my binos as I'm there, but I don't make specific, you know, I guess, uh, endeavors or scouting trips just to go out and, and look for acorns at that point. I mostly notice that, you know, right at the point when it's coming up into the season or, you know, even letting my cameras kind of tell me a little bit of that, but I do focus on apple trees. So like apple trees are something that I will check trees ahead of time because they're like the, in, in my area, they're like the golden gem of it. And, you know, it doesn't mean necessarily would hunt directly over that apple tree because typically there's six cameras on every apple tree that are and uh, ladder stands the whole way around them, depending on <laughs> where they're located at. But uh, it's just something that, that I definitely pay attention to. So w with that being said, um, another question that, uh, that we got here was, let me see, I just had it pulled up. Have you ever wanted to have Levi Morgan, Andy May, Johnny Stewart, and others available at all times? Well, you can with CyberScout from Spartan Forge. CyberScout is like the chat GPT for outdoors men and women. You can ask it any questions related to bow building, scouting, hunting, survival, and a whole lot more. I think you'll be impressed with how it responds. CyberScout is currently out now for a select group of early beta testers and will be available to the rest of you really soon. The entire app is a complete tool for planning your hunt with incredible aerial imagery mapping, journaling, deer prediction, and some of the most accurate and detailed weather data. Use the code EASTMEETSWEST to save 20%, and if you're still on the fence, give the 14-day free trial a chance at SpartanForge.ai. CVA has been America's number one selling muzzleloader brand for over a decade. Hunting with a muzzleloader opens up a ton of hunting opportunities across the U.S., and I've been using the Acura series. 
but they don't only make badass muzzleloaders. Their line of centerfire rifles are great quality and not terrible on the wallet. The Cascade short barrel is ideal for tight quarters, deer drives, and quick shots in the big woods. You can check out their line of muzzleloaders, rifles, and accessories for every season and every range at bpioutdoors.com slash CVA. If you use the code EASTMEETSWEST10, you'll get 10% off of all CVA products, which includes rifles, muzzleloaders, and accessories. All right, so we'll start. We'll, we'll go back to Andy on this one first. If you're hunting like a specific deer, how are you following him, you know, through the season? You know, say like how, but you're, you know, if you're looking at it from, uh, you know, an early season standpoint, as you start to get middle of October into the rut and late season, if you haven't, which he's definitely dead by middle of October, but if he, for some reason he slipped you, then uh, <laughs> how, how do you, how do you do that? Yeah. You know, it's, <clears throat> it, it's, these questions are kind of hard for me because what I think about, um, you know, my home turf of Michigan and, you know, Northern Ohio is one thing, but then I like travel so much to all these different types of areas and everything's, every spot's a little different. Um, I'll say, I mean, around here, it's extremely rare that I would have, um, an opportunity to follow a single buck through an entire season. Um, I just don't, uh, have access to anything that big that would hold a deer from start to finish. Um, you know, even the public pieces around here, um, are not very large down by me. Um, so, you know, that I, I don't, I can't say that I've ever had that. Now I have, what I have picked up on and capitalized on is that, you know, specific deer like to be in specific areas during specific times of the season. And that's how I really have been able to zero in on, on a particular buck around my home area is through years of um, chasing him, finding sign, trail camera photos, sightings, glassing, that kind of thing. You start to put together a pattern of like, okay, this deer is here early season. And then as soon as the bachelor group's you know, break up or the, the, the corn gets harvested or the beans get harvested. Um, boom, he's gone. Or he's just, he just disappears and you don't really know why. And he transitions in, into more of a fall range. And maybe you have access to that. Maybe you don't, maybe you try to find it. Um, around here, it's just so tough because the parcels are so small. You're really, really like landlocked. I always feel like when I go like to the Western Plains or to Kentucky or to Iowa and I'm hunting some of these bigger, these bigger places, I feel like so much freedom because I really feel like I'm handcuffed here. So the way I've been able to kill these deer is, is really figure out when they're in a certain area and then hunt them during that time. So if you can figure out where, you know, where they're at early and you got that first few days of the season to, to get in there, slip in there and get it done. Um, that's how I killed my first Michigan buck last year. Um, and then, and Based a, off a like historical data, you mean like from years past? Yeah. Yeah. Just like, yeah, some, some photos, some, um, you know, maybe you had some, you know, pictures of them in there or some sightings you hunted in there, some observations. Um, it really is just like, uh, it's a, you know, I always get, gather my information from like observation, like visually seeing the deer move, um, trail cameras or sign, you know, I mean, that's really what it comes down to. So, 
one of those things. And you can determine that too from sign. You just don't always know exactly if it's that particular deer. But a lot of times around here, if you get mature sign, you get a good track, you get a good rub. It's most likely the deer you're thinking it is because we don't have a lot of mature deer. Yeah. You know, we don't even have a lot of two-year-old deer. So when you do see a good track, it's like, okay, that's most likely the one, unless you know of another one in the area. But then like, um, same thing, you know, if you have access to, um, or you can hunt a piece of public or you have access to a piece of private land where the deer likes to rut, you know, and do his breeding, you know, that's a, that's a big deal too. Cause you might have like a two week crack at them, you know, in a certain area. So, you know, like, you know, just the couple of these deer behind me, that's how I killed them. You know, I, I was after those deer in particular. And, um, you know, I really just focused on when they use that area. And sometimes I have more information than others, but, um, you know, that's, that's how I've been able to do it. Like on smaller, more broken up parcels where you don't have like 15,000 acres at your disposal. You know what I mean? Yeah. No. And, and even, even with that, like, I, I, I feel like even in the big woods, when you do have, you know, 40,000 acres that you have available, sometimes it's just difficult to keep track on where they're going to be at at all times of the year. So I have specific spots that I don't go to until November 8th. And then I have spots that are like, you know, more of my early season type places. And, and I'm rarely hunting up like one particular deer for the whole season. So like, I'm just kind of bouncing around based off that historical data. And, and, you know, that was one of the things that we've all talked about with, um, with using the app with the Spartan Forge app, the journaling feature, as far as being able to write those notes in there from the previous years to be able to, to be able to go back and look at those journal entries when it was put in there. And it helps me, uh, remember because my my memory is decent when it comes to deer, but, uh, as you start running, you know, 40 plus cameras and hunting all these different areas in different States, it it can get lost pretty quickly. That's for sure. Yeah. There, there's a, a big six point I killed uh, back here in Ohio a few years ago. And, um, you know, I knew that that, that part of the, the country where I was hunting is, is really flat, really open, um, extreme limited amounts of cover. And, you know, you would think like, okay, this buck ruts in like a, you know, a certain half mile stretch or a mile stretch. Well, this, this deer was like, three miles one way one day and three miles the other the next and like i just could not figure out where this deer was and um you know i was like you know i'd, I'd hunt them over here and then i'd get a picture of them over here and then i'd be driving this spot and i'd get a sighting of them over here and you know his sign would pop up here and i'd hunt it and then you know he'd be over here um so with that deer um you know what i my strategy ended up being was like okay i'm gonna sit in my best spot and what made me think of this is, uh, you know, I, I actually um, messaged with Troy Pottinger a little bit. And, and, you know, I was thinking about his strategy of, you know, finding those big hub scrapes, um, those big primary scrapes, and then just kind of camping out on those and waiting for the deer to do that. And, that, and essentially, that's what I did. I picked up the, the, the nicest, thickest cover, even though it was very tiny, in the middle of a sea of wide open, flat ground. Um, like not CRP ground, just like dead flat crops. And, um, there was a nice primary scrape in there and that's where I ended up sitting. And I, I don't know whether he busted me or, or not. And, uh, that's how I ended up killing him. So, um, yeah, it's just around here. It's a, a little, 
different than a lot of the other spots I hunt because you're, you're so handcuffed to small areas. So yeah, no, that makes sense. What about you, Garrett? Do you remember, uh, the, do you remember I, the original question? <laughs> somewhat, but what Andy, you know, just kind of ended it. he started with it too, is actually the, the, probably the biggest reason that I started to hunt more bigger woods types of areas, because even hunting like smaller pieces of public, you might do your scouting and find big buck sign. Then you hunt it the next year and you put cameras out. Maybe you get pictures of that one deer. And by the time you, you do all of the, the calculations and figure out where he's located, it's like, oh, I can't hunt him there because it's on private or, or because of X, Y, or Z, because of how he's set up. And it's like, you just invested all that time to maybe hope you get lucky during the rut. Whereas if you got, you know, 5,000 acre piece or just like 10,000 acres of county land, you can spread a much wider net. But the, the bigger thing is if you find a nice deer, you're not handcuffed as much. And I don't think Andy has a luxury where he lives because of how the land lays out. But I've started driving further to get into that kind of a scenario. And what I found in some areas is that you might find three or four different deer that you'd be you know, happy to shoot. And then if one of those bucks gets killed or goes missing or whatever, it's like you still got options within that, that same bigger piece of land. And a lot of times their home ranges will overlap a lot during late October and even the rot. Yeah, no, that, that definitely makes sense. You find those good doe groups in those areas and, and those multiple bucks will be there a little bit different, you know, scenario, obviously with Andy saying like, you know, uh, yeah, I might find one mature buck in, you know, an area and the rest are year and a half year olds or, you know, yearlings basically. So that's, that's uh that's a whole different, you know, scenario kind of between, I guess Garrett and I have a little bit more closer similarities and on that front for sure. Um, all right. Another question that, uh, that we had here was how everyone is using that. We were talking about the journaling feature, uh, within the Spartan Forge app, but I want to hear how each of you use your, your strategy. So let's start with Garrett on this one. Um, how are you using the journaling feature? Are you using it for logging trail camera data or using it for, uh, logging, you know, specific encounters in the woods, um, scouting missions. How, how are you using that? For the most part, either physical encounters or trail camera photos. I started using it for trail camera photos a lot. You know, you pull all your pictures at the end of the year and let's say you got a, you know, certain deer on camera six times during daylight. And so you make a journal entry for each one of those and then you can look at the the wind and weather information and then you do the same thing with a different deer and a different deer and then you're able to put that library together you know really quick right even on your phone and then you know having it there i can flip through that just like wherever i happen to be and i can recall all that information the following year and obviously you can group them by deer then so if you're looking for specifics you can kind of look at it just in that uh, more condensed package of data um i don't use it for every hunt a lot of times if I don't see anything that's noteworthy, and maybe this is, is something I couldn't do better on, but I don't document every time I'm in the woods. I don't document every time that I hunt, um, primarily because if I was going to filter that stuff down the road anyway, then I would just be wanting to look at whatever I saw either on cameras or, or from those observations that were successful. And I would just assume that outside of those time frames was, you know, dead zone. So, yeah, that's just kind of how I use it. Yep. What about you, Andy? Yeah. Um, so like when, uh, Spartan Forge came out with the, the journaling feature, I was so pumped because I have 
kept a journal since the very first year I hunted um, in the late 90s. Um, and every single hunt I have documented of exactly, you know, the deer I saw, um, kind of how they moved, the conditions and everything. So I was super pumped to, um, to get that right on the app, you know, it'd make things a lot easier than handwriting it out. Cause I just do it in like notebooks. Um, but like, <laughs> unfortunately like this year, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just at a bit, such a busy point in my life with, um, my daughter is the first year that I kind of let my journaling slack a little bit. So what I ended up doing was I didn't, I started on the, the app and then I started getting behind on it and then I couldn't remember. So then I ended up after the season, um, jotting down, like mo I only ended up having 11 deer sits. So it wasn't that hard to go back and, <laughs> and think about it. But, uh, I, I really just wrote, um, wrote down, like, like Garrett said, the most noteworthy hunts and, and what I did. And I put them, I just put them in the notebook. So, um, this year I'm, I'm committing, you know, I was, I was pretty disappointed that I did that because I did forget some things and, and forget some details. So, um, I'm going to commit fully to the, to the journaling feature there. But, um, I do, I have found value, um, in journaling every hunt, you know, I mean, even if it's just like the date and, you know, the temperature and the wind direction and the location, and you just put zero deer, you know, I have, I have a million entries that just say zero deer, <laughs> but, um, what that, it, it helps me. Um, one is it's fun to just go back and just be like, okay, what was my season like in 1997? You know what I mean? I can go back and see, and I have the location exactly what I saw. And it just, it just helps me almost relive that season, which I've really enjoyed. Um, but it also helps me like kind of weed out with a guy like me, you know, I work two jobs. Um, my daughter's super busy in school, um, in sports. And, um, you know, I do a lot of traveling around right now at this point in my life, her from this sport to this sport. And it's really put a, a hinder on the amount of time I get to hunt. So it has, you know, that information really helps me kind of eliminate unlikely areas. Like if I, you know, if I hunt this, this area and I'm, I haven't seen, you know, a shooter deer there in two, three years, um, or the hunting has been poor or whatever, you know, I might, I might choose just to kind of drop that one off for a while and really start focusing in on some higher, you know, areas that have a higher success rate, you know? So, um, I have found some value there and, and definitely in establishing some patterns of like times of the year when certain spots light up. Like I, we talked about an individual deer and how I've been able to kill some individual bucks by learning where they're at at specific times of year. Well, sometimes it comes down to, um, you know, if I don't have a specific deer I'm after, I'm moving to a location that typically heats up during the rut because there's does there or whatever. So if I, you know, if I'm able to establish a pattern on, on, on said property that, you know, saw seven does, I saw 12 does and fawns, I saw 15 does and fawns, I saw and no bucks. And then come, you know, October 26th, I saw a three-year-old buck, you know, October 31st, you know, saw three bucks cruising, you know, and then it, it just kind of builds up those, those hunts that I documented where there wasn't much action. It was just does. It tells me like, okay, I need to stay out of there during that time. I need to let those does do their thing. And now I can focus in on this window. And I think by doing that, um, man, I've just become real, like efficient with my sits, you know, it's like, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I always feel like I have 
something to kind of look back on and and point me in a direction that is at least going to put me in the game. You know, sometimes yeah. it's a, a much higher percentage if I have more information. And sometimes it's just a, you know, a decent percentage, but it's a point in the right direction. So I, I've found that very valuable and very enjoyable to just kind of look back over the years. So I document every single hunt. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. And and uh, I, I would definitely agree that it's made you pretty efficient um, with your sits, you know, only having 11 sits last year. And, and I, I don't even remember how many deer did you end up, you know, capitalizing on those 11 sets? I ended up killing four bucks and um, one doe. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, you're, you're pushing 45%, uh, <laughs> completion, completion rate. <laughs> no, that's, no, that's incredible. And I, the way I use the, the journaling feature, so I do use it on sits, but I use it a lot scouting too. And I use it from the standpoint of when I get to a spot that I want to hunt and I'll check the, the wind and the thermals and check it with milkweed and I'll add all those notes in there. So I can, you know, be able to understand, uh, you know, all right, how, you know, going back and looking at this, you know, this stand location of where I'm going to go into as in, all right, this is the way that the thermals are pulling through there. This is a heavy, you know, hemlock cover. So it's pulling downward thermals a lot longer in the day than it would be, you know, if it was more open woods and just those little notes in there. And then we're with the app automatically adding in the weather data that's there long. I don't need to write that stuff down because it's already right there lo- location specific. And, and that's exactly what I did with my opening day deer last year was I was in there a month ahead of time and really noticed about, you know, with the, with the wind was going a certain direction. But if you moved over next to that Creek and I dropped the milkweed and that would run down the Creek and the thermals were pulling down. So if I climb that tree right on the Creek bank, that I was basically a bulletproof setup, even with the Southwest wind that was, you know, blowing directly from where the deer should have been coming from, from that cut. And so that's, that's one of the the details that I like to put in there from a scouting standpoint. Now I don't document every scouting trip that I do in there, but I do document important things. You know, most of the time, if it's just a waypoint or whatever, I do all that detail on the waypoint. But when it comes down to like wind direction and setup and those things, I will write that in there. And, uh, I, I, I need to get better with, uh, the hunt logs. I would like to get to the point where I was doing it on all hunts where now, I mean, I think right now I'm more aligned, uh, with Garrett on doing it more so when there's some sort of action or anything involved, but I I can see holes a little bit in my plan there of like, okay, you know, maybe, uh, you know, looking back, I don't remember if I hunted that early October or I didn't, you know, I didn't have any data there, but I can't remember if I necessarily logged it, you know, like I, I looked back and I'm not allowed, I'm not allowed to go through them, but if I was at my dad's house, he's got all these notebooks, but I'm not allowed to review those, those note sheets from all his hunts for the last 20 years, like you have too. But, uh, <laughs> um, um, but Andy, honestly, if, if you want to, um, if you want to publish that journal, um, I'll buy it. I'll be your first customer, whatever you're asking for it. I'll, I'll pay it. Yeah. It's pretty cool to have. I, I used to, my friends used to make fun of me. They used to call me a nerd because I would like take a weekend and I would literally just like lock myself in the house and I'd go through all my hunts and, you know, all my big buck kills encounters sightings all that and i was like putting together all this data and just trying to find these little trends you know um you know wind speed wind direction uh temperature 
you know, and then I was like, you know, you know, these, these kills, these sightings, you know, so a certain percentage of them happened, like when it was above average, certain, certain percent happened when it was like, you know, within five degrees of average and then a certain percentage were below average. And, you know, it's interesting. It's fun. I don't, I don't, I don't dive into it as much anymore because I think, you know, you just start to kind of get a gauge on kind of what gets deer up and moving. And, you know, I have some of my beliefs and they differ than, than some other guys, but, you know, um, it's just, it's just being a student of the game, man. Like people like to call me an expert. I'm, I'm no deer expert. You know, I am, I'm a deer student. Like I am, um, I'm always trying to learn. I've learned from both of you guys, um, in tons of these guys that are, that are joining in and, 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 and asking questions. So, um, that's what it's all about, man. Just continuing to learn. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm right with you there, man. Just continuing to learn and, and being able to, to just pick up on those things as you go along. You talked about like being able to recognize things, you know, as you go. And, you know, I, I, and I, Bill's on here right now and he's, he's already committed to, to do something with the, the trail camera data. So we're going to put that out there for everyone to be able to do that. But I keep like a log of, of trail camera pictures of certain bucks and same thing with the dates, the weather, all that different stuff. And then the direction they're coming from. And then I start, you, you can filter by this specific deer and go through that. And, uh, I I've done, I've done a lot of that to try to, I can't do it with like all the bucks, but if there's like, you know, two or three deer a year that I'm kind of focused on in an area and then try to put together those patterns to be able to understand, you know, different weather uh, that might be affecting them, different wind directions, all of those different things. I mean, come into, come into play, but I, I don't let it like, I don't let it cloud, cloud my judgment so much that I can't make a decision. Cause I know that can be a problem. Um, sometimes for myself and others, like you have too much information and then you can't, you can't do anything with it because it's like paralysis by analysis, basically kind of like when I'm driving to a spot in the morning and I change my mind like four times and I'm at the point where I got to make a turn in the road and I'm sitting there at that stop sign and I'm not sure which direction I want to go to. Or if I'm walking in and I got my saddle, my sticks on my back and I I'm standing next to the tree. I'm like, well, I don't know that spot 120 yards away. That, that might be better, you know? And I just, <laughs> I go back and forth on it. But, uh, so sometimes data can be, can uh, give you a little bit of paralysis by analysis if you if you let it well i'm shooting a new bow this year and i am pumped after playing around with the buddies hoy rx8 the smile on my face made the decision for me the first thing i noticed with the new hoys were their extremely smooth draw cycles and the ability to adjust the back wall to make it rock solid like i prefer I outfitted my own RX-8 with the inline accessories that made installation extremely easy and balanced out the bow. My favorite accessory so far is a simple one. It's the GoStix 2.0 adjustable legs to make your bow like a tripod, but it doesn't interfere with any part of the bow or the limbs or anything like that. In addition, the integrated kickstand within the HBX Exact Cams protect your string from excess wear when you put your cam into the dirt ground hunting or spot and stock just got easier if you want to experience what i'm talking about head to your nearest hoyt dealer and take a test drive yourself you can learn more at hoyt.com the mobile hunters expo is a consumer-based hunting show unlike any other it provides an interactive learning experience where you can try all things mobile hunting and learn from the best in the business 
Come experience an unbiased, community-based environment where you can improve your hunting skills and find the right equipment for your needs. I'll be speaking at the Nor'easter Show in Mannheim, Pennsylvania at Spooky Nook Sports from August 9th to 11th, 2024. So come check it out at, or either of the other shows in uh, Michigan and Georgia. You can purchase tickets online at the mobilehuntersexpo.com or grab tickets at the door. I'll see you there. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's why I've talked, I've talked a lot about, I think, I think guys, a lot of guys probably don't like the answer because it's so vague, you know, and it's kind of like crazy, but you know, like if you think about it, like predators, right. They like, like a, a cat, you know, or some sort of predator, like they, they're not like thinking about all these things, right. They're acting on instinct. And I've always talked about just going with your gut and going with your instinct and like really tapping into that because, yeah, I think like, you know, with trail cameras and all this stuff, we can take in all this information and, and drive ourselves nuts on what we're supposed to do. But there's a lot to be said. Um, you know, certainly that stuff can help you, especially learn and kind of point you in the right direction. But at some point during the hunt, you know, you got to just kind of go with your gut and instinct. And I've done that like, I've done that from the beginning, you know, I've just done some really off the wall things, just kind of like what I feel like I should do. And I've always tended to be on the more aggressive side. And so I've, I've made a, a ton of mistakes, but like every time you do that, you're just learning, you know, by being aggressive and getting in there and, and following your gut over time, over years, over decades, you start to fine tune that, you know, you're, you're, you're not even consciously doing it but your instincts are like recalculating and recalibrating and like you're just getting better at that stuff as opposed to like say you know your strategy of you know put out 40 trail cameras and just hunt off the trail cameras you know what i mean it, there's a lot to be said of just kind of going in there and and going with your gut and you're gonna screw up but you you fine-tune that you know you pushed in a little too far you bumped your buck off well next time i'm gonna push a little less you know, and be a little more careful, you know, or, you know, I saw a big buck in this scenario, like this is the same scenario over here now in this, this different type of setting. Like, I wonder, you know, I, I got a feeling there's a, this could hold a good deer. So, you know, really tap into that. If, if you get, start getting paralysis, you know, by analysis of information, like, okay, just what does my instincts tell me to do? Like, like, what do I feel like doing? Like, what do I think I should do? Um, and, and kind of let go of all the information. You know, I really think that that's, I, I'm such a feel type hunter and instinctual type hunter. Like I, I always fall back to that. Yeah. Especially start gathering so much information. I'm not really sure what to do. It's like, okay, I'm just going to go back to my instincts and you, you can tap into that and it gets better, you know, as time goes on. So it's all, it's a long-term, it's a long-term game. You know? Yeah. You know, it was, it was funny. I was scouting this spring and I came across this spot that was just like, I, I hit it and I was just like, man, this is an awesome spot. And I had to literally go back and think why, but like you, cause you just, you start scouting so many places and, and hunting so many places that you just recognize it before even understanding why. And I always ask myself why to try to break it down and be able to figure it out. But it, once you do it enough and get those reps in and you continually, you know, are playing in this game, you know, for years, you just start to pick up on those different things. Garrett, how much how much do you th- feel like that you play off instinct versus data when when you're going into spot? 
Well, it depends on where I'm hunting. <clears throat> if I'm hunting out of state, I am almost you almost have to go off of instinct because you don't have any historical information to go off of. Whereas if I'm hunting closer to home and I have a couple of years of information, then I especially look at that historical information with a lot of um, like like a lot very high regard and obviously the weather and everything else that's going on. So I'm more data driven when I'm hunting some of the places that I have that knowledge with. But if we're going out to Nebraska, North Dakota, like wherever, it's pretty much just hunt the sign because going out and doing, you know, off-season scouting trips and trying to run trail cameras and, you know, states there seven, eight hours away, it's just not really feasible. So I guess it depends. But I, I do think that employing both of those strategies that kind of help each other to grow a little bit helps you not become too reliant as a hunter on just looking at the data because there's other scenarios where you're forcing yourself to hunt instinctually, but you're also forcing yourself into a scenario where you can start to, you know, glean useful information from that data at the same time. Yeah, no, that, 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 that's a really good point there. What about like, what do you do? Like when you go say, all right, let's, let's put it in your home state. Let's start with this first. Like your in season scouting regimen, are you like, are you going into an area based off of the, you know, your camera intel and historical data and just hunting, or are you doing some, are you still doing more like boots on the ground scouting during the season? And how does that, that kind of look? And then after that, just kind of how that differs from, from the out of state section. I think for me, if I'm, if I'm hunting my home state, which is Minnesota, Minnesota is one of those states where you can't run trail cameras on most of the public lands. And so from that standpoint, I'm often, I would say maybe 80, 20, 20% of the time, I'm just going out for a scouting trip. 80% of the time I have a scout with my platform on my back type of mentality where maybe I have the ABCD all kind of pre-planned and I'll just hit all those spots. And if, if all of those numbers, you know, if all those letters on, you know, my, my daily plan, if they're all bad, there's no fresh line anywhere, depending on how much time I have, I might just end the hunt there and say, well, I was chalk that I was a scouting trip. Or if I still have enough time, maybe I'll hit some other place and, and just give it a sit for the sake of giving it a sit, which usually doesn't turn out all that great, but you have those scenarios like, you know, the one I alluded to earlier where you might still have some success, but when I have an area that I'm able to use cameras, then I think a lot of times I start to take a little bit more of a, a hands-off approach, or I guess more looking at the data from the cameras and scouting, but less hunting. And I only hunt in those scenarios when I think everything's lining up pretty well, which is kind of totally opposite for what I do if I don't have the, the camera data to bounce off of. Yeah, no, that makes sense. What about, what about that same question to you, Andy? Yeah, very similar. Um, it really depends like year to year, uh, like last year, for example, um, you know, I was, I felt really dialed in, um, with my sits, with the information I was gathering, I found a couple of good bucks. Um, you know, the one in, in Michigan that I killed right around the opener, um, that one was kind of going on a rainy, I kind of knew where I wanted to, um, sit and I went in on a rainy day, pulled a card, checked it and that deer was on the camera and uh it just so happened I, I went in during the rain on purpose and it just so happened that um the rain was supposed to end you know right 
kind of during the evening there, you know, right during prime time. And that's just a, that's always, always a kill time. If you can, if you can time that. So, um, I went in there, kind of snuck in, in the rain, got set up, the rain covered my noise and then the rain stopped and the deer just started moving and I killed them, you know, an hour and a half before dark, which never happens, you know, in Michigan, it's usually like a last minute thing, usually early season. Um, and then the, the second Michigan buck I killed is complete opposite, you know, spot I've never even set foot on, um, didn't have any other shooters located, um, all summer or anything. Um, and just kind of went to a new area. Like, like Garrett said, I had my, my saddle platform and saddle and just went in and, and scouted sign and found some good looking sign that looked like it was from a, an older animal and, um, kind of followed the sign back to a thicket, saw which way the wind was blowing. It wasn't in my favor for, you know, that kind of approach. So I circled a big loop around, came in on the back side of it. And, um, I knew I, I had a feeling that the buck was going to move away from me. Cause that's where the sign went, went up into this little Oak flat and there was a bunch of scrapes up there. So the, the, the movement that I was anticipating was away from me. So I got, I got into the bedding thicket. So I got to the edge of the thicket and then I started kind of sneaking in and then I just got up really low. I don't know. I got 50 yards into the thicket. It was like slow, like just literally rolling my foot in, sneaking in as stealthy as possible and then just get really low up in this tree, just enough to shoot over, you know, the brush. And, um, it was interesting because, I get set up and I just, I just a couple little branches that I hit just like, I was like, Oh, you know, like, cause I know I'm the deer's in here. I'm, I'm close. I'm 75 yards from this deer, but it's thick enough cover. It reminded me of like a, almost like a clear cut, you know, it was clear cut at one point, lots of young growth, young trees, not a lot of trees to get into. Um, and, uh, but it was small, you know, it wasn't a large, a large area. And I hit, I hit a few branches. I was like, Oh God, you know, like he probably heard that. And, um, the wind was, was, it was a just off wind. So it was kind of blowing at him, but off to the side, which is a, a really good killing wind. And it was funny because I made that noise and a doe comes, she, she heard it and she comes and investigates and she comes like about seven yards from my tree and she's. Hey, we lost you there, Andy. And, uh. I was in the saddle, so I was behind the tree, you know, I was just like this, you know, finally she lost interest and walked right back to the bedding area. I was like, dodged a bullet there. And, uh, so then I was thinking like, okay, this deer is going to get up and walk away from me. You know, there's no reason for him to come to here, but what I had in my advantage was the just off wind. He's, he feels good. He's been smelling this direction all night and I'm in his bed. I'm in his bedroom. So I felt very confident calling. So I let out a few grunts and, and I, I believe that you can like cast a call, like cast it a certain direction. Like you've all heard like a turkey gobble and he's facing away from you and he sounds like he's a mile away and then he turns and he gobbles and it sounds like he's right there. And same with elk hunting, you know, you can hear them just over the, the ledge and they sound like they're, you know, on the next ridge over and then they come up over that bench. And it's like they screaming in your face. So I casted the call, um, kind of like upwind in, in, a, in a direction where it made me sound like I was over there in hopes that he would come and investigate and circle downwind. But I, I did it, I did it to the upwind side so that if he circled in downwind, my wind would still cut and miss him as opposed to casting it this way where he would circle more downwind thinking I'm over there. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just, I did it early. Like I did it like a 
like a long drawn out. Um, and then I just hit a few branches together. Like a deer's just kind of, you know, this is early mid October. So not super aggressive yet, but they're, you know, they're establishing their pecking order and it's getting darker, getting closer to prime time. And I hear Robin, I hear Robin just thrashing in the bedding area. I'm like, Oh man, that fired him up. Like he thinks something, something's in here with him. He didn't like it. So I hear him start coming and I hear, you know, he's kind of walking through some wet areas. I hear the, the, the hooves flashing and um then i hear a snort wheeze and i'm like oh gosh he's coming and actually i i actually got this shot on video i didn't hardly ever video and i got this shot on video but he comes out of the thicket and he does exactly what i did he j hooks into where i cast it upwind you know made it look like i was farther away and up in that direction in the thicket as opposed to like where i'm at because i didn't want him to come downwind of where i'm at i want him to come downwind of where he thought he heard mm-hmm so, um, and that's what he did. He did a little moon. My wind just missed him and I got a shot at like 27 yards. So there, there's a, just last year, an example of, you know, one where I had information and one where I didn't have information. I went out and found it, but I was, I felt real dialed in last year with my sits the year prior. Um, dude, I, I was bumbling around like an idiot. I felt like I didn't even, it's a miracle I've ever killed a deer. Like I couldn't find deer. I spent the whole... The, all summer, through all my trail cameras, I think I had 15 trail cameras out. I had one deer over 115 inches, and he was like 115 inches. <laughs> and it was like, oh my gosh, like, like how, where are all these deer? So I spent a lot of time doing what Garrett was talking about on, you know, boots on the ground, moving cameras around, but also just looking for sign and hunting off sign. And ironically, as, as much as I struggled that year, I had the same success. I killed four bucks that year. You know, and I felt like I didn't know what I was doing and I was completely behind the ball as opposed to last year. I felt really dialed in. I was getting the information. I was finding hot sign, like big buck sign. And I you know, killed the same amount of deer and way less sits, you know. So, you know, it just it just depends on the year, you know, that in-season scouting is, is always ongoing. I do feel like, you know, it's you got to strike while the iron's hot and if you you can get that information as close to, you know, when it's happening, either whether it's a sign or a sighting or a trail cam picture and get in there and get them killed quick. You know, that's the way to do it. Yeah. How, how much, how much do you guys pay attention to like doe groups and like, if you're hunting an area for multiple years and like when they come into, you know, come into heat, like for example, I, I know of like specific doe groups that I can, knock it down to like three days uh, in, in the calendar year when the the biggest doe tends to come into heat and those bucks just like filter mm-hmm. to those areas and like i i log that data and pay attention to that just as much if not more than bucks you know when specifically around that rut time frame uh being able to to focus that and i think that's you know some really valuable stuff that that i don't hear a whole lot of you know, a whole lot of information on it's always about finding the bucks, but you know, with, when it comes to the rut, like paying attention to those doe groups and, and being able to look at that. What about you, Garrett? Do you, do you pay attention to the doe groups and, and any historical uh, data with those? I do. And even kind of going back to the, the summer trail camera thing, a lot of times when I might put out cameras this time of year, mm-hmm. the vast majority of the photos I'll get would be like does and fawns hitting those scrapes. I've even got pictures from last year of, you know, fawns getting up on their hind legs and hitting the licking branch in like August, early September. But lo and behold, come the third, fourth week of October, you start getting some really nice bucks hitting those same exact areas. 
And so I definitely pay attention to the doe groups and and when that cluster of activity tends to happen, you know, it might be like that three day window. Um, like at another area now two years in a row, October 26th to 28th, like that's when it's hot. And if you're before or after you, you might just see smaller bucks in that area. But like during that three day window, there's like three or four mature bucks that could be hitting that one scrape line. Uh, and so that's like a really great historical piece of information that is kind of based off of initially finding some of the doe groups in that area and getting those early photos on those, those scrape areas. Yeah, no, definitely. Andy, what's, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, same thing, you know, pretty much an identical answer. I think that's why you see like some bucks disappear like at different times, you know, it'll be like mid October and there's a, you know, a buck you're hunting early and boom, he's gone October 15th. And it's like, you know, where'd he go? Well, there's probably, you know, somewhere in his rut range or wherever he goes, there's probably a hot doe. Like, you know, some of them come in early. Um, I, I, I use that as a fallback approach when I really can't get anything going. I really don't have, um, you know, I really don't have a, sh- a particular deer I'm after around here. I fall back to those doe groups, you know, and, and maybe I know when, when a couple of them come into heat or I have a general window and sometimes I don't, and I just kind of start bouncing around to where those are and just kind of start nosing around. Um, but yeah, I've definitely seen that. I've definitely capitalized on that. And that's why I think you see that shift you know, sometimes mid-October, sometimes late October, sometimes it's like November 5th and boom, one shows up, you know, it's, it's not random. It's, it's because, you know, the, the urge to breed and there's, there's does that are coming in. So yeah, yeah, no. definitely, definitely can capitalize on it. If you're, if you're attentive and keep good notes and, and remember those hunts, you know? Yeah. And, and it, it is, <clears throat> you know, I, I talked about that, like at the beginning, kind of saying as if like, you know, I know where all the doe groups and when they come in all these areas, that's definitely not the case. There's, you know, out of all the areas I hunt, I, I can look at probably three or four different doe groups that I feel like I have a pretty decent handle on, but that's it. You know, the other ones are a little bit more difficult or might not, you know, some of them just have particular bedding areas. They spend a lot of time in, in the big woods and other times they, you know, that, it's more you know browse centric they might just be kind of floating around it's kind of like someone that's backpack hunting you know they might you know move along and then they they stop and they set camp down here and then the next day they're moving along and they set down camp here where the ones that have like more of the the designated food sources there mass crops or whatever they're focused on that they might have you know more particular type areas for those doe groups to spend time in at least that's at least that's what i've seen um Let's try to do uh, one more question here, and then we'll we'll head off because I know there was a ton of different questions that came through, and it was difficult to be able to see them as they were all scrolling through here. But uh, there was one at the beginning that was brought up. Let me see if I can find it. That I thought was a pretty good question. I don't know if he's even still on here, but Tim Bueno asked it. Uh, where was it at? He's a lot of, a lot of talking going on back and forth here. Lee Ellis had joined the conversation at one point and decided that he was going to throw his two cents in, which obviously nobody gives a shit about. All right. So Tim said, what's a game plan for a high density with minimum cover? Yeah, I saw that question and, uh, Tim, Tim's a friend of mine. He's a cool dude. Uh, good hunter. Um, you know, I've, I haven't really ran into that. Uh, I think that's more of a Western thing. 
Um, you know, I know he's out in Montana and I, I know you can get, you know, limited cover out there and, and, and pretty good deer densities around here. If it's limited cover, um, I, I mean, if it's really limited cover, like where some of the areas I hunt in Ohio, it's really low deer densities. The, the hunters are just way too efficient at killing. Um, the, the deer densities can't catch up, you know, without, without regulation. So, um, you know, I, I haven't really experienced that. I've experienced it a little bit like high, real high deer densities, like in a suburban setting, but there's plenty of cover. Um, so I haven't really seen exactly what he's talking about, but I, I, I know where, what he's talking about because I know Kenyon and them have been out there. Um, you know, I guess it would depend on, again, what time this, this is just me speculating and kind of what I would, what I would, how I would approach it, I guess. But like, I would, you know, depends on what time of the year Are you talking about early season, you know, mid season, rut, late season. Um, you know, anytime you have a, a lack of cover and you have a visual advantage, um, you know, the glass and observing observation stands, getting advantage and glassing is going to be your best friend. And, you know, you, what, what I do in, in that type of situation, um, which I haven't experienced a ton of, but is I would try to observe, you know, if it's say it's an early season hunt, like where, where are these deer coming out of, where are they traveling to and where's that weak point? Where, where's that weak uh, weakness in the chain link that I can slip in there and catch where these deer are moving through. Um, you know, a lot of times, like what I've noticed out there when I'm out, like out West, like muley hunting, I'll see whitetails and stuff too. do this antelope, you know, all kinds of species, but like, you know, they'll move in a general direction. And then there's, there's often little spots there where it might concentrate movement down or it might concentrate, you know, a group of bucks early season or the buck you're after. So, more of a stay back approach, gather that information, um, as opposed to it, and picking out a specific spot that's a, a weakness in that chain link where you can slip in undetected and get that bow shot, as opposed to just diving in and potentially busting and disrupting the whole situation. It's more of a, a sit back, observe, patience, and then move into that key spot. Um, that that would be, that would definitely be. Um, that would be what I would do if that, if I was ever, you know, challenged with that type of situation with high deer density, low cover, you're going to be able to use your glass. You're going to be able to observe and then make a more detailed, you know, strike. Yeah. More calculated move. Garrett, yeah. have you ever hunted any, uh, like type areas like that? The closest would probably be the Sandhills in Nebraska. And I don't know how much that compares exactly to what Tim's hunting, but the overall deer density there was lower. But when you did find some cover, then the density was really high in that pocket. But exactly like Andy said, you're able to sit back on a hill that was, you know, a quarter mile up and you could just watch day after day where those deer would come out. You'd have, you know, doe groups that would move in and out and then you'd see bucks. But it would, it kind of struck me last year as interesting that even on days where you had similar weather and wind directions, one day a buck might be bedded in a certain spot you know, next to a, a little piece of marshy ground in the middle of like a pocket of cover. And then the next day he might be betting 400 yards in a different location next to some other little pocket of cover. And so it was like, he, at least the, the small amount of time we spent there, it was really hard to kind of figure out, you know, how do you, 
how do you set up on the right day in the right spot for that particular deer and not bust everything else out? Because if you were to just dive into that cover, I mean, you could tell pretty quickly that a lot of deer use that area and a lot of deer would, you know, use all aspects of that, but on different days and different areas. So it was, it would definitely be, you know, somewhat challenging. I can understand where the, the differences lie there versus some of the stuff we're more used to hunting. Yeah. Was that early season, Garrett? Yeah, that was early September. Yeah. So like in that scenario, like I'd be, be sure that I'm on my perch, you know, before first light, you know, and, and that, that information that you can gather at first light, you know, when those deer kind of moving back to bed, then you can really get a, you know, really nail down a, a specific deer and a, uh, a particular piece of cover. I mean, that's, that's how I build your hunt. You know, you got, you've got to be out there and you've got to be on that vantage before it gets light, let things settle down, let things just come alive naturally. And that's when, that's when you're observing, you're hoping to catch one, you know, kind of moving through the country and, uh, you know, and see kind of where he goes up to bed. And then sometimes you have to move quickly or, you know, jump a ridge over or, you know, get another, another angle, but you're, you're trying to really pinpoint that pocket of cover or that little drainage or that little cut or that little fold that that deer's in. And then that gives you your strategy for the midday stalk. If it's mule deer or for whitetail, okay, I know he's there. He's going to come out to feed where, where can I get where I can intercept that movement? So that's what, that's the only thing I'd add is just, you know, that, that first light and, and a lot of guys do that, but I think a lot of guys get out there late. You know, a lot of times I've, I've caught that glimpse that, you know, that early season glimpse at first light, I've caught it just, just as it's cracking light, you know, you just might see that rack go over the hill or you might see that, you know, in the little bit of cover, the deer's kind of in there and he's milling around and then he let, he beds down before that sun is even really up. So, um, you gotta, you gotta be in there early and really be on that vantage point and observe. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I, I can't say I've. I've ever hunted, you know, whitetails in that sort of scenario. But honestly, I would flip that back on Tim if he was still on and ask him to join because he obviously kills him every year in that scenario. So I don't know why he's asking that question. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, that, that's, that's an interesting one. Those, the, the Western whitetail game with the high deer density and the low cover thing, like that's a, that's something I, I don't have any experience in to even be able to, to give some sort of a, a talking point. So I'll just say Garrett and Andy, what you said, yes. <laughs> All uh, right. No, I think that, I think this was a good, good conversation we had here. We got through, I think 12 of the questions and there was the last I counted was 115 total. So I guess we didn't get through uh, all of them that came through. So I apologize for that, but we will, we will talk afterwards, and we'll choose a uh, winner to give the, the free membership of the Spartan Forge app. So just make sure you're uh, following along with our pages here. We'll put it up on our story and, and uh, be able to notify whoever the winner is there and get them set up with a free membership uh, to the Spartan Forge app. So thank you guys for, for joining us here. Andy and Garrett, do you have anything else you want to you wanna end this with, or are you good to go? No, just uh, just thank you for uh having me on it was fun i always love talking to both of you guys you're uh good buddies uh, appreciate the guys asking the questions and um saw a lot of people i know uh join and and contribute so appreciate it guys yeah thank you and again sorry that we couldn't get to all the questions there it's uh difficult to be able to to uh, 
to see them as they're scrolling up through there. But um, I wish I knew how to use uh, Instagram Live a little bit better, and I could have directed it um, a little bit better. But Garrett, do you have any last words? No, I kind of echo what Andy said. You know, thanks everybody for jumping on. I'm really pumped for this season to start. All right. Well, thank you guys. I'll uh, stop recording here and then figure out how to end this thing. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.